I'm going to give a brief overview of this book for the first part of the talk. Um, and then uh, kind of throughout the talk, I want to talk about something that is not in the book, but is a, is a dynamic of popular feminism and popular misogyny that I see happening um, uh, in current, uh, the current climate, especially in Western Europe and North America right now. Um, I do want to frame uh, the talk with a couple of things, um, which is, I'm sure you all know from the introduction, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> so um, this is, and this is, but I am a media scholar, and so I look at um, and critique the media. So it's going to be, in part, a critique of the media platforms um, uh, on which journalism and journalists are kind of authorized to speak. So I would love to hear your feedback in particular about that critique and what you think of it. Um, the other thing I will say is, is probably um, obvious from the second part of my subtitle, this is um, going to be a bit of a grim talk. So um, it's not going to leave. I, I thought about putting like a slide of a super cute puppy or a baby or something at the end just to leave us with something cute. But then I thought, no, I'm just going to leave us with something grim. So, so um, and, and I'm very happy to, to get your feedback at the end. So um, I'm going to frame the talk with two moments. Um, as we all know, about a year ago, um, a little over a year ago, the hashtag MeToo began to circulate in digital and social media. On October 17, 2017, the New York Times published an article that detailed multiple accusations um, of sexual harassment against the Hollywood producer uh, Harvey Weinstein. The Weinstein case mobilized again, as I'm sure most of us know, uh, hundreds of other stories um, from women about harassment in everyday life, which were manifest then in this multimedia movement that became known as hashtag MeToo. As many have pointed out, the phrase MeToo was actually created in 2007, not 2017, uh, by an African-American activist in the US, Tarana Burke who was a survivor of sexual assault and who wanted to share her story as a way to connect with other victims, especially uh, women of color. The fact that Burke, the originator of Me Too, um, was largely, at least initially, eclipsed by the high-profile, mostly white female celebrities who came forward in the Weinstein and other scandals is not insignificant. Um, here you can see the different stories that kind of uh, uh, cropped up. This is. Um, again, you're journalists, you know this is a very small sample of the hundreds of stories that came out during um, uh, Me Too, during the, during the, especially a year ago during the kind of height of the Me Too movement. The mainstream media has covered the Me Too story expansively, which is important. It's a really important move. But the stories are often about the powerful men who were accused and what they were going to do next, or the celebrity women who accused them. In other words, while the public awareness of Me Too has helped reveal how widespread sexual harassment is, it's also focused on very visible public figures. And I say this not to dismiss the accusations of any of these figures, any visible or not, but just to point out that while Me Too existed in 2007 <clears throat> as a mechanism for building intersectional feminist community, it became highly visible only under the mediated logics of a new kind of popular feminism. So the Me Too movement is expressed on those media platforms that easily lend themselves to commodification and simplification. 
those industries that provide platforms of visibility, entertainment, news, and so on, that are already designed and scripted for really any mode of spectacular spotlight. So while I think we need to figure out how to keep our focus on Me Too, now that that first moment of visibility has come and gone, um, the economy of media visibility, and I'll go into that a little bit more later, that I feel characterizes this, uh, the contemporary media environment, um, means that we also have to attend to the other stories that are now so slowly su supplanting these, um, in terms of visibility, these stories of Me Too. What are the stories that we hear about now in relationship to this? The stories that, <clears throat> have, that I've been kind of collecting in the last several months, almost a year to the date of Me Too, are stories of primarily white male victimhood. Um, they circulate on the same media platforms as those about Me Too. Me Too. And I argue that these two moments are not unrelated, right? That there is a connection with the media visibility of Me Too and the visibility of what I'm thinking about is a sort of different kind of inflection of Me Too. In my mind, it's kind of always said as a whine or a snark or, a or kind of a hostile comment, maybe even mocking in Trump's voice, usually, um, um, like a child who isn't getting enough attention, rather than a mode of solidarity. Me Too, what about Me Too? So I'm trying to think about the fact that despite that the fact that misogyny has existed as a norm in policy, culture, economics, and the political realm, in the current moment, there is an overt claim that masculinity, and more generally, patriarchy, is under threat. And it's under threat in part by movements like Me Too. Popular misogyny is often expressed as a need to take something back, such as patriarchy, from the greedy hands of feminists and women in general. We see this palpably in the increasing visibility of the extreme right across the globe. While the racist ideologies of the extreme right have often been correctly identified as white nationalism, the extreme right has also run always on an overtly misogynistic agenda. As reporter Matthew Lyons has pointed out, harassing and defaming women isn't just a tactic, it also serves the alt-right's broader agenda and long-term vision for society. A key logic of the extreme right is recuperation. Men's rights organizations and digital culture are filled with proclamations about how women and feminists have not only destroyed society, but even more importantly, they have emasculated it. So in the book, I contend with this kind of relationship. The rise, what I see as the rise of what I call popular feminism, how it has encouraged both a response and an intensification of popular misogyny. So the book is about the relationship between these two, and my argument is that you can't um, really try to understand what kind of work popular feminism or popular misogyny does without theorizing their relationship to each other. So Empowered is, uh, is kind of organized around some of the key themes that I recognize in popular feminism, things like shame, confidence, and competence. And these are also themes that are taken up by popular misogyny, though the meaning of them is then distorted. It's mirrored back to popular feminism in what I call a funhouse mirror effect, where the politics are distorted, it deflects attention away from women and towards men, and then is targeted actively towards women, or against women. 
In turn, each of these themes are dependent on a logic that revolves around what I see as the twin discourses of capacity and injury. And by this, what I mean is popular feminism and popular misogyny tap into a kind of neoliberal notion of individual capacity for work, for confidence, for economic success, but also position injury for women, the injury of sexism, for men, the injury of feminism and multiculturalism, as this injury as a key obstacle in realizing this individual capacity. So I situate this kind of this discourse of injury capacity, and I'm going to go into it more in this talk, to show how these two, how popular feminism and misogyny are related. Expressions of popular misogyny in the contemporary moment often rely on the idea that men have been injured by women. Men are seen to have been denied rights because women have gained them. Men are no longer confident because women are more confident. Men have lost jobs and power because women have entered into previously male-dominated realms, regardless of how slowly. So men's rights organizations and other forms of popular misogyny dedicate themselves to restoring the capacity of men, the recuperation and the restoration of traditional heteronormative masculinity and of patriarchy itself. And this is often seen as a backlash to popular feminism, and it surely is a backlash. But backlash, I think it's more than that, because a backlash implies a linearity. Something lashes back in the same direction. I think misogyny um, lashes out in all directions, finding expression in obvious and not so obvious ways. So victimhood here is appropriated by, not by those who have historically suffered, but by those in positions of patriarchal power. And this rerouted victimhood works to then retrench patriarchal gender relations. So victimhood becomes sort of disarticulated from those who suffer and reallocated to the privileged, right? So it establishes this kind of symbolic redistribution which is kind of appropriates the moral meaning of vulnerability itself. So that's, those are the interconnecting narratives of injury that frame this talk. I'm going to come back to them in the second part, but I wanted to kind of begin with them so we keep them in mind as I go through the other stuff. But first, I want to just offer some definitions about the concepts I'm using in the book, um, especially this broad political and economic context of popular feminism. Everyone with me so far? I told you it was going to be grim. I told you it was going to be grim. I gave you the warning. Um, okay, so popular feminism. We are in North America and Western Europe um, living and also other places as well. Those are mainly where my examples are because I was a scholar living in the United States and now in London. Um, but we're living in a moment where in which feminism has become sort of incredibly popular, right? It feels like everywhere you turn, you, you, there's an expression of some sort of feminism on a t-shirt, in a movie, in an acceptance speech, in the lyrics of a pop song, on the mug I drank my coffee out of this morning that said women power. Um, um, uh, you see it everywhere. You can find it everywhere, right? Feminism is popular. People define popular differently, and there are surely more than three definitions of it, but for me in this book, I use three definitions or three senses of the popular to describe popular feminism and popular misogyny. One, it's manifest in discourses and practices that um, are circulated in popular and commercial media. 
So things like digital spaces like blogs and Instagram and Tumblr and Twitter, but also broadcast media, the news, entertainment, and so on. Um, the second definition is that the popular popular feminism signifies the condition of being liked or admired by like-minded people. In other words, popular here, I'm thinking about in terms of popularity, right? The popularity of, and what that means and what you have to do to become popular in this sense. And three, for me, the, uh, the space of the popular is, as cultural theorist Stuart Hall argued long ago, a terrain of struggle, a um, space where competing demands for power sort of battle it out. So this means that there are many different feminisms that circulate in the media right now, um, and some of these feminisms become more visible than others. So popular feminism is networked across all media platforms. Some connect with synergy, some struggle for priority and visibility, and, and there are di different reasons for those struggles. But popular feminism has, in many ways, allowed us to imagine a culture where feminism doesn't have to be constantly defended, right? It's, it's even admired, it's embraced. This is Webster, um, Merriam-Webster's dictionary word of the year last year, which was um, feminism. And, and I'll go through these different examples. Um, but so, so while all this feminism is bolstering in many ways, and it has been really bolstering for me, um, it's also given me pause to think about some of the social and economic conditions that define and describe it. Because as you will see, those social and economic conditions limit what feminism can be. So I think it's really important to critically analyze popular feminism and to guide my question, my analysis with questions like, who can be thought of as a popular feminist? Who gets to put, be, you know, kind of move into that space? What are the goals of popular feminism? And again, there are different kinds of versions of popular feminism, but today I'm talking about the set of conditions, including the media and entertainment uh, industries, that comprise a highly visible form of popular feminism. So these are just some of the kinds of things that I'm talking about when I say popular feminism. We have Emma Watson, who is a spokesperson for the UN who has a very visible popular feminist platform. You have the Everyday Sexism Project and all sorts of other blogs like Everyday Feminism, which is down there, um, um, that, that have exploded, that are dedicated to kind of impassioned um, uh, theories about feminism. You have a coding industry, uh, I mean a coding, um, uh, coding industry, something, you know, this idea of, of getting women, more women and girls into STEM fields and into computing fields that then becomes a hot new industry in and of itself, the coding industry, Gina Neff knows more about this than I do. Um, you have sartorial choices, jewelry, like Me Too jewelry, or that's an H&M. If there's anyone who looks empowered, it's this one right here, Empower Woman. You also have uh, corporate um, expressions like Dove and their movement for self-esteem, probably the most successful, economically su successful one, but you also have things like che uh, Chevy and Audi and always and so on. You have the Women's March and all the circulation and the merchandise that, that you know, kind of arose around there. You have Taylor Swift who apparently has decided to be a feminist. She wasn't before. She decided she wasn't before but now she is and so um, we're all grateful for Taylor. Um, um, <laughs> yes, um, so, so um, in, it, feminism is popular 
in part because of the media forms in which it circulates. Feminist messages of, of gender inequality, body positivity, equal pay for equal work, the normalization of sexual harassment and critiquing that normalization, self-confidence, these circulate and achieve visibility on multiple media platforms and industries. And of course, the architecture of many of these popular media platforms is capitalist and corporate. So what that means is that the social and economic conditions for popular feminism are in part about those technologies and their, their underpinning logics um, of, of kind of corporate culture and capitalism. So, and I'm not collapsing media platforms with entertainment industries, but I am suggesting that they have a shared supporting logic. And we can see this, again, in the kind of specific messages of feminism that are taken up by corporate culture and used in advertising, which some people have called femvertising or empowertizing, you know, this kind of whole genre of, of things on digital and social and broadcast media. So while all of this feminism, again, has been bolstering, and I will say that it's been very bolstering for me. I've been a feminist theorist my entire career, and it hasn't been until the last several years where it was like something that I didn't constantly have to defend. And, I, and it, to share a personal moment, I have a 17-year-old daughter, and when I was st starting to write this book or to do re research this book, we happened to be watching... Um, the MTV Video Music Awards, when Beyonce got up on stage with the, with the word feminist lit up behind her in lights, and my daughter at that point was 13 or 14, and she looks up at me and she's like, look, mom, Beyonce's talking about your work. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, finally, finally, yes. I have been validated by Beyonce. So, um, so it's been really exciting for me and really exhilarating. Um, but it's also given me pause to think again about the social and economic conditions um, that define and describe popular feminism. Um, but also to, give me, uh, to, to make me think about the relationship between popular feminism and popular misogyny. So it's made me think about these varied manifestations of feminism with misogyny um, within a framework of visibility. So it's within this framework of visibility that I'm arguing that feminism becomes tangible and becomes popular and becomes accessible. This is just a basic dictionary definition of visibility, the state of being able to see or to be seen. Um, another part of it, of the definition, is uh, the degree to which something has attracted general attention or prominence. We all know that visibility is important for any kind of vision to be seen, right? But I also think we need to think through uh, about the mechanisms of visibility. How is a vision seen? Through what channels? When I see, what I see with much of popular feminism is that the media economy in which it circulates, the mo you know, kind of the most centrally, often ends up shaping and constraining its vision. This means that we need to think about the kind of attention that we pay to popular feminism. What version of feminism becomes prominent? In other words, why the rising visibility of this kind of safely affirmational feminism, you know, where I can wear a t-shirt that says this is what a feminist looks like and so on, is in many ways really exciting. It also often eclipses a feminist critique of structure. The mainstreaming of feminism often constricts 
its circulation, as if seeing or purchasing feminism and contributing to its visibility is the same thing as changing patriarchal structures. So <clears throat> it's important to kind of note that I'm thinking of these logics, these, these logics of visibility as the set of social and economic conditions for popular feminism. The implication, though, of these logics is not just for feminism, but for social movements in general. And I think we can see this all over the place right now. These conditions have been called various things, including platform capitalism, which implies the sort of emptying or flattening out of the content of meaning, emphasizing instead the endless traffic in circulation of this content. So I think, and journalists, you know this better than me, that there's a contemporary obsession with numbers, right? Metrics, the numbers, likes, followers, clicks. Given the predominance of digital media platforms that are predicated on the accumulation of these kinds of numbers where their business depends on them, then to make oneself visible or express oneself is also dependent on an accumulation of numbers. This is what the um, communication scholar um, Jose Van Dyke has called the popularity principle, where despite differences among and between media platforms, they're all invested, she argues, in her words, in the same values or principles, popularity, hierarchical ranking, quick growth, large traffic volumes, fast turnovers, and personalized recommendations. For me, these these social and economic conditions comprise what I have called the economy of visibility. An economy which can work to constrain and constrict the vision of feminism as a critique of structure. So, uh, you know, scholars in media and critical race scholars and feminist scholars have been, you know, talking about the politics of visibility for a very long time, right? The politics of visibility usually describes the process of making visible a political category such as uh, women or trans or refugees, right? Um, making visible this political category um, that has historically been marginalized in media and policy and law and so forth. And then this process is, it involves this category, visibility, and a qualifier, politics, that then together can articulate a political identity. Here, the goal is that coupling the politics of visibility, the po politics with visibility, um, could, be, could, could result in something, su such as social change, that exceeds the visibility, right? The vision of the politics, right? Does that make sense? So you argue for more representation in the media. You argue for more perspectives in the media. You're arguing for visibility as a way, to, as a route to a politics. And the politics of visibility are still very important, right, is, um, for the marginalized. To demand visibility is to demand to be seen and to demand to, to, to kind of matter, to recognize oneself in dominant culture. So to be seen for marginalized communities, again, refugees, immigrants, working class, has been crucial, to be seen has been crucial to an understanding and an expansion of rights for those communities. They don't... Politics of visibility, of course, do not always result in social change. We know this, right? But the point here is that visibility is understood to le be leading to something, right? As a, as a part of a political struggle, as a route to a vision. 
In the current media environment, however, I see, I think, I'm arguing that I think while the politics of visibility are still important, we are also shifting to an economy of visibility, where economies of visibility incre increasingly structure not just our media escapes, but also our cultural and economic practices and daily lives. In the contemporary media and digital moment, media outlets and systems can easily absorb the visualization of basically any experience. So economies of visibility here fundamentally shift the politics of visibility so that visibility becomes the end. Visibility is all there is, right? Rather than a means to an end. Getting seen can become all there is. And in this way, I think some political visions have transformed their very logics from the inside out so that the visibility of these visions is what matters rather than the structural ground on and through which they are constructed. So wearing a t-shirt that says this is what a feminist looks like transmutes the political logic of what it means to be a feminist as a political subjectivity invested in challenging gender inequalities into what a feminist looks like, her visual representation. So in here, it's, it's sort of vi visibility or it kind of is restructured to stop functioning as a qualifier to politics. The t-shirt is the politics. The politics are contained within the visibility and vis visual representation becomes the beginning and the end of political action. So identifying oneself as someone who looks like a feminist becomes sufficient political action in itself. Um, as communication scholar Herman Gray has argued, the identification and announcement of one's visibility is both the radical move and the end in itself. I want to just say, I'm not, if anyone owns this t-shirt, <laughs> I'm not saying that you shouldn't own this t-shirt. I do own that t-shirt, right? I'm saying, but I'm, what I'm saying is that this, th there's so much, you know, um, kind of circulation of popular feminist messages and images and merchandise that it becomes enough to just wear it, right? Rather than to think about who made that t-shirt, right? What are the, what are the, what is the structural ground that we're challenging here as feminists? So the available structures for popular feminism's visibility in the current moment are usually those of, the domi of dominant centers of power, media companies, corporations, the technology industries. In this sense, visibility often becomes synonymous with trending, whether in the mainstream news media or on social media. And to trend is a different process of visibility than to agitate to be seen in order to be granted basic rights. Trending is about recognition and about making oneself available for normalization. So the visibility that fuels trending is a demand to be recognized in an attention economy. So you can also see this if you go back to this slide. Um, does anyone know how Webster's picks their word of the year? Number of clicks. Right, number of clicks on, which I, I'm, I'm really happy that feminism got a lot of clicks. But since I also, and I'm turning to this now, talk about popular misogyny, we don't always know what the clicks are about, right? How feminism is used as this, because it's just about the accumulation of numbers. You know, because that's how the, this kind of circulation works. It becomes very difficult to actually interrogate the structure, the structural ground on which um, it exists. So, 
Within this context of visibility, it's also clear that feminism isn't the only popular phenomenon that we need to contend with. Um, every time I began to invest, investigate a popular feminist uh, practice or, exp or expression or message, there was literally always an accompanying hostile rejo rejoinder or challenge, regardless of the mediated space in which it occurred, whether it was social media or digital media or the legal realm or corporate culture. For every Tumblr page that was dedicated to female body positivity, there were fat shaming and body shaming comments. Right? For every confidence organization that I looked at for girls and you know, set up in order to empower girls with self-confidence, there was yet another men's rights organization claiming that men actually are the real victims here. So misogyny is popular in the contemporary moment for the same reasons feminism has become popular. It's expressed and practiced on multiple media platforms. It attracts other like-minded groups and individuals, and it manifests in a terrain of struggle with competing demands for power. So for me, popular misogyny in some ways follows a very conventional definition of misogyny, which is just a basic hatred of women. But I'm also trying here to make a, nuan a more nuanced case for popular misogyny, um, to think about it as the instru instrumentalization of women as objects, where women are seen as a means to an end, a systematic devaluing and dehumanizing of women, and importantly, something that is networked across multiple media platforms, an interconnection of nodes and all forms of media and everyday practice. And so here, these are just a couple of different examples. MRA stands for Men's Rights Organizations. This is a network of a collection of men's rights organizations. All men's rights organizations are not misogynistic. They, they, this exists on a continuum. Some are about, you know, kind of arguing for paternity rights. But then some are about figuring out how to get, um, uh, uh, get people off of rape accusations as well. Some contribute actively to rape culture. Elliot Roger is a, uh, um, he killed six women in Santa Barbara and became what is called an incel hero. Incel stands for involuntarily celibate, which is um, an online community of men who feel that they have to turn to violence against women because they are not receiving the sex with women that they feel that they are owed. This is Anita Sarkeesian, who is a feminist video um, uh, commentator. She has a show on YouTube, and she kind of dared to go into the world of gaming and say that there's a problem with representations of women in gaming, and was um, then hit with death threats, rape threats, and then someone actually made a game called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian, which the only goal here is to, is to kind of bloody her face. Um, because I'm British now, I had to have Love Island as, as up here. He's Alex and Love Island. The reality show has become an incel icon. The Red Pill is a, is a, a misogynistic uh, chat on Reddit. This is a campaign from India about gender inequality. And this is Jordan Peterson. Um, Alex Benassian is someone who, a man who... Uh, last April drove a truck into a crowd of people in Toronto, killing 11 people who hailed Elliot Rogers as the supreme gentleman before he did it and said the incel re rebellion has begun. So it's not that um, misogyny is an outlier, right? Misogyny is something that is, that is still 
we can hopefully say it's an out, you know, it's an outlier and against, you know, kind of normative culture, but it's also being emboldened in all sorts of ways um, in the contemporary moment, and that's what, you know, I'm kind of uh, thinking through here. In this contemporary digital moment, in that economy of visibility that I talked about, misogyny is, it itself is constantly moving from one node to another, emerging in different spaces <coughs> with varied manifestations. So to confront popular misogyny means to confront the notion that patriarchy itself needs to be assessed differently than it ever has been before. It's not just a discrete group of organizations or roles or spaces or hidden figures, but instead I'm arguing that we need to see it as networked, as something that is networked across um, spaces. It finds expressions and nodes ranging from social media to global meetups, to fashion, to neo-masculine boot camps. Through this dynamic, misogyny is, is reimagined, takes on new forms, and has a variety of effects. And as we know, this is how networks work. They allow for different spaces of expression simultaneously in that they function through this kind of rapid and asynchronous communication. They decentralize power even as they remain loyal to hegemonic institutions. We see this network at work, in the election of an unapologetic and admitted misogynist as the President of the United States, in federal policy deliberations on health care that include only male represent representatives, and the continuing disparity in wages between men and women, not to mention wage disparities between white people and people of color. So this digital context for this in the contemporary um, economy of visibility emboldens and enables these different nodes and uh, interconnections to, to exist. And we know that digital media is, is not only provides a context for popular feminism, which ostensibly is a more positive use of a network, right? Um, but it's also one that enables and validates what Jack Bradich has called effective divergence, cultures of judgment, aggression, and violence. And he argues, we are in the midst of a media-fueled popularization of bullies, a convergence of microviolence, perhaps comprising a cultural will to humiliation. And that cultural will to humiliation is what I think makes contemporary popular misogyny a shifted set of discourses and practices from previous historical moments. It's a constellation of a popularization of bullies, present not only online but offline as well. And this will to humiliation, then, is focused on in these movements that are about uh, the restoration of male confidence. And so I'm going to just talk a little bit about confidence and then wrap it up um, for today. Confidence manifests in different ways within the dynamic of popular feminism and popular misogyny that I'm saying kind of revolves around this notion, this twinned notion of injury and capacity uh, with which I began the talk. So it makes sense to me to kind of sit with confidence for just a minute and, and think about what it is that confidence means, even you know, in the context, um, in this context of popular misogyny and feminism, and also to acknowledge the slippery slope um, that it, it encourages. So confidence is a feeling or belief that one can have faith in or rely on someone or something or the, uh, about mutual trust. You can t take someone into confidence, right? In, in within popular feminism, confidence, specifically self-confidence, is seen as an individual act, 
one that women just need to adopt by telling themselves, be confident, be beautiful, be empowered. You're smart enough to code. You are worthwhile. Again, I'm not arguing that those are bad things to say to ourselves, but I'm, what I'm saying is that what popular feminism is saying is confidence, wear it like makeup, right? Um, you know, Beyonce, um, Emma, Kim Kardashian, the, the confidence issue of Elle, coming forward in, in, in a Supreme Court hearing. These are all you know, versions of what I think of as popular feminist confidence. And again, who would argue with them with these, with these kind of versions, except for that it also, this version of confidence refocuses the reasons why women aren't, confidence in the, aren't confident in the first place back to women themselves, rather than say, patriarchy. You know, what is the structural ground that, allow, that, that encourages women to not feel beautiful, to not feel worthwhile, to not be confident? That's not what's going on here. Instead, you write in lipstick on your mirror, I am beautiful, and you look into it every day, and you convince yourself that you are. And if you don't convince that yourself that you are, then it's your fault, right? So in line with this, I think we need to think about another root of confidence and think about the confidence game. Here, the confidence game is a swindle in which a victim is persuaded to trust the swindler in some way. A con artist is, in contrast to confidence, someone who is adept at manipulating the truth, that certainty, right? A confidence game is one where per a person swindles. Confidence in this moment is positioned as a commodity. And like all commodities, it receives its, values from, its value from scarcity. Within popular feminism and popular misogyny, both men and women are seen to lack confidence, and the lack of confidence that men, often white, cisgendered, heterosexual men, feel in themselves is frequently blamed on an overconfidence in women, as Sarah Ahmed has pointed out. This overconfidence is apparently enabled by popular feminism and is, in turn, a confidence that is accessed by white, cisgendered, heterosexual women. So confidence in this dynamic is positioned as a zero-sum game so that if women have it, that ownership apparently comes at the expense of men. The goal is to take it away and take it back from women. And so this, you know, these are um, different kinds of expressions of taking back confidence from women by men's rights organizations. So... Uh, a couple weeks ago, in the United States, um, a man shot and killed two women and injured three other women um, and a man at a yoga studio in Tallahassee, Florida. According to reports, the man, men, the man identified as an incel, a member in this online community, united by their inability to convince women to have sex with them. He was also a self-proclaimed misogynist. Right? and actually argued in his videos on his Facebook page for um, a, new th a new kind of ideology of misogynism to take over. Over the summer in the United States, there was yet another uh, school mass shooting, and like so many other shootings in the United States, the student who shot and killed 10 people at Santa Fe High School in, um, in Texas apparently did so because a girl he liked rejected him and embarrassed him in class. This caused his father, the father of the killer, to say in the news that 
what we, what we really need to be thinking about is how the boy was the victim here. So just a few weeks before that, in April in Toronto, I've already mentioned this, Alec Manassian killed 10 people, injured 16, and, and right, you know, right prior to his violence, he said, he posted on Facebook, the incel rebellion has, uh, has already begun. Well, we can't conflate incels with everyone. Not everyone is an incel, and I'm not saying that everybody participates in misogyny. I want to be clear on that. I do think that there is a kind of cultural ethos that we're in right now that is enabled by the sense of, of the loss of white heterosexual male confidence, right? And that's, that confidence often revolves around women and what women are taking from men. You can only, if, if any of you saw the Supreme Court hearings in the United States with Brett Kavanaugh and you saw um, Senator Lindsey Graham have a temper tantrum in the court where he's yelled about how Christine Blasey Ford, the woman who came forward with the accusation, was ruining Kavanaugh's life, right, by coming forward. The sexual rejection by women, the Me Too movement, the disruption of jobs and status by global economic recession, and a su subsequent loss of employment for many men. These are seen as injuries to men caused most often by women, as well as other others, like refugees and immigrants and people of color. So to come back to the point in which I began the talk, white male victimhood is rerouted and appropriated from those who have historically suffered to those in positions of patriarchal power, those who have often inflicted the suffering in the first place. So here we can see empowerment as a response to victimhood. The empowering discourse of popular feminism is both symbolically and concretely redistributed, and the moral meaning of vulnerability itself is appropriated. This redistribution takes place in part within this economy of visibility, where what is invisible is often more important than what becomes visible. And this, again, is how the mirroring of popular feminism and popular misogyny works. It's a, but it's a funhouse mirror, one that distorts and transmutes the tropes of injury and capacity. So here in this mirror, we have this, this kind of messages of injury, capacity, and the injury that women feel that popular feminism um, um, kind of uh, amplifies is a structural injury. It's centuries of patriarchy and racism and sexism. It's gendered violence its control and discipline. But the capacity to overcome that injury is often seen as individual. Just be confident, practice your power poses in the mirror, um, come forward, be empowered, right? But in this kind of mirroring, the kind of, for popular misogyny, the capacity injury flips on this. Injury is individual. There is no structural injury for white men in this sense. The structure is patriarchy. Right? But capacity, overcoming these injuries, so, so the injury is individual. Harvey Weinstein gets arrested. Right? Bill Cosby goes to jail. People are accused. It's an individual injury. The capacity is structural. We have presidents and heads of state and the Supreme Court and what I've called the comeback econ economy, that space and time where men just have to wait after they've been accused until they can come back and re-enter the world of work, their, their professions, and so forth. And you can see this manifest in extreme right movements across the world, from Brexit to Brazil to the US to Austria. So this economy of visibility and the affordances of technology contribute to a misogyny that is both networked and popular. 
But a focus on these particular facets of the problem of misogyny, I think, blinds us to the larger problem of it itself, right? I'm arguing that we need to see it for what it is, a manifestation of a crisis in neoliberalism, a consolidation of its failed logic. Neoliberalism and popular misogyny are deeply interconnected despite a general mediated dis uh, discourse that positions misogynist as an outlier, a deviation from the cultural acceptable norms of traditional masculinity. But here, and again, in these increasing movements across the globe, we see this crisis of neoliberalism as producing not only ideology about <coughs> gender, <coughs> excuse me, but violence. And it is a structuring force that is both popular and networked.